Welcome back. This is the lecture in which we embark on the second phase of our course on the art of public speaking. We are going to roll up our sleeves, settle down to work, and compose that speech. I like the word compose because it literally means put together. It's also something we use for music. That's how composers create their works. We're going to do it in the same way. And just as they use blocks, tunes, movements, we're going to begin by thinking of ways to put your speech together on a large scale with large building blocks and then get down to the smaller parts, the individual word choices, and so on. I want to throw a few terms at you at this point, as sort of part of a roadmap of, of our development through this field of the art of public speaking. Some Latin words which have been used since the time of Cicero to describe the different elements of orations and rhetorical pieces. First of all, what have we been doing so far in our first three or four, excuse me, lectures together? We've been talking about three of Cicero's five elements or canons, as he called them, of public speaking. First of all, we had elocutio. Do you remember that pebble in the mouth for Demosthenes? That was the simple production of the text in verbal, in oral form. That's elocutio. Then second, we went beyond elocutio to pronuntiatio, or sometimes it was called actio, action. That was Demosthenes' rule, shared and, and passed on and exemplified by Patrick Henry, of acting out your speech with your voice, with your body, all the things that you do to deliver the speech. So, elocutio, the words, and then pronuntiatio, the delivery of the speech. Um, and then memoria, which is memory. Mark Twain exemplified that for us in his very first public speech. When he was so nervous there in San Francisco, he took his script. It was all written down. He tucked it under the American flag. But he found he was able to extemporize by remembering what was on that paper. That is the goal we're trying to reach. The freedom that you have to move about the platform, because you're not tied to the podium, and look the audience in the eye. So memoria, elocutio, and then pronuntiatio, those are the things we've covered so far. So what are we turning to now as we begin to move toward composing the speech itself? Well, the speech has two components. It's got the substance of the speech, and it's got the organization or the manner of presenting it to your audience. The sub substance of the speech comes under Cicero's heading, inventio, the invention. You're coming up with ideas, you're coming up with in facts, with facts, you're not literally, you're not literally inventing the facts, that is never a good idea. But you are using your powers of invention to create a mass of facts, of details, of impressions, of narratives, of all kinds of things that you want to convey to your audience. What is it that gives them form and organization? Dispositio. Disposition would be the English word. That is how you decide what comes one after another in the course of your speech. You can give the illusion of three dimensions in your speech. It doesn't have to be a linear story. If you start 
and you have your opening and then your body of your speech and your conclusion, and in those you tuck in digressions or refer back to things that you talked about earlier, you begin to create the sense of three dimensions. All of this is part of your dispositio, and we're going to be talking about that and the inventio in these four lectures that make up the second part of our course, Crafting Your Speech. Now, I've always felt that something that is relegated to a minor part of most textbooks on public speaking and rhetoric is the most important thing. Storytelling. I believe, this is a credo with me, that the human brain was designed to remember stories. It was not designed to remember facts. But you can make facts memorable by attaching them to stories, to narratives. The same kind of things that you had read to you as a child that held your attention because something was happening to a protagonist, some adventure, some crisis, you wanted to know how it ended. If you want to write the most successful speeches, you will find ways to find the stories in your subject matter, in that mass of stuff that your inventio has pulled together. Pull out those stories, arrange the details and the different facts and the different parts of the or information that you're trying to get across into the story. Believe me, if you do that, you will not only find it easier to remember your speech, but the audience will stay with you more closely, pay more attention, understand it better, react more, more extremely, with greater grief or, or laughter or interest, and finally, after they leave the hall, they will remember it better if it was told as a story. So that's our focus now, this time. Make it a story, use narrative, in order to organize your speech and to present it to your audience. We're going to start with someone who I think is a remarkable example of this. And remember, we haven't had many so far. I don't think many public speakers do approach this, uh, this work of creating the, the dispositio, the organizing element, in terms of a story. And you, as I said, you'll see that reflected in the textbooks, where it's often limited to just anecdotes decorate your speech with little stories, little examples, little anecdotes. I'm going way beyond that. I'm saying find a way to make the whole speech one narrative, one story. Marie Curie, the famous discoverer of radium, two-time Nobel Prize winner, is our guest professor this time. She did a remarkable thing. She was asked to give a graduation speech at Vassar. She almost never gave public speeches. She was very modest and somewhat shy. How did she approach it? She decided to tell a story. What the people at Vassar were hoping she would do, being this eminent, world-famous scientist and a great example of a woman who had broken through all kinds of barriers in terms of acceptance in the scientific community, they wanted her to somehow inspire the graduating class of 1921 at Vassar College. They didn't know how she was going to go about it, and frankly, she was such a giant at that time that almost anything she had said would have made it memorable for those students and their families to think, I was there in the hall when Marie Curie spoke. She took it more seriously than that. She wanted to tell them all about radium. It's a complicated subject. She knew that not many of the young women were scientists like herself. 
She wished there were more. How did she go about making it memorable? Let's plunge right in and see. Radium is no more a baby. It is more than 20 years old. But the conditions of the discovery were somewhat peculiar. And so it is always of interest to remember them and to explain them. That's a beautiful beginning. It comes actually after her formal beginning. I've cut into where she starts the substance of her speech. Look at what she does right from the start. Radium is a formidable subject. It's a newly discovered element. It's radioactive. It's already been discovered by 1921 that you can treat cancer with this radium. People know it's important, costly. But all these facts are the kind of things you'd find in an, in an encyclopedia article. How does Marie Curie, the, the discoverer of radium, begin? Radi radium is no more a baby. She's almost like a mother talking about her child. She also personifies radium, so you feel radium has adventures. Radium comes of age, 20 years old. You're never going to forget the fact radium was 20 years old when she gave the speech. You won't stop thinking of radium now as the protagonist of this, this little piece that she's going to tell, this story. I think it's also important that Marie Curie wants to give you her personal feelings. Look at how much of herself is in this first sentence. The conditions of the discovery were somewhat peculiar. That is a subjective opinion that only she could have. She and her husband, who was her partner in working on this, somewhat peculiar. That's not a scientific term. That's the kind of term that anybody in the hall could use about a puzzle. Something that raises a question, a sort of a who done it and how did it get done kind of mystery. And it's getting your audience to want to know the solution to a puzzle or the ending to a story, a cliffhanger. That's what's going to keep them focused on your words. And then I really like her giving you the image of herself and her husband with memory. It is always of interest to remember them. That they sit around and look back on this and they want to share that with you and to explain them. But she's picked the right way to explain them. She's going to tell the story of how radium was discovered. This will not be an encyclopedia entry style reasoned presentation of what's most important about radium, somewhat less important and least important details. She's going to tell it as a narrative, how they began, how they got into it. I'm not saying that everything in this will be crystal clear to us. You could hardly pick a more formidable subject, but let's see how she does it. We must go back to the year 1897. This is Marie Curie's version of Once Upon a Time. Professor Curie and I worked at that time in the laboratory of the School of Physics and Chemistry. I was engaged in some work on uranium rays, which had been discovered two years before. I spent some time in studying the way of making good measurements of the uranium rays, and then I wanted to know if there were other elements giving out rays of the same kind. So I took up a work about all known elements and their compounds. I found that several of those which contain uranium or thorium or both were active. In other words, radioactive. Now, she is arranging this as a process of discovery. We may not be going with her in terms of knowing and understanding exactly each point, but we understand we're on a journey with her. The narrative has begun. We are moving from ignorance to understanding and doing that primeval journey from darkness to light 
with Marie Curie. But then the activity was not what I would expect. This is a great narrative device. Surprise, wonderment, not what you thought was going to happen. Then I thought there should be in the minerals some unknown element having a greater radioactivity than uranium or thorium. This is a little example of her uh, slightly unidiomatic English. Then I thought there should be in the minerals, we would say, then I thought there must be in the minerals. But I'm sure they had no trouble following her there in the hall at Vassar. And I wanted to find and to separate that element. Well, we've obviously got two protagonists here. She is the questing intelligence. She is the hero in search of that lost treasure. And this unknown element that's out there, radium, although introduced at the beginning, is still not understand, understood to exist by her at this point in the story. That's what she's going after. We thought it would be done in several weeks or months, but it was not so. It took many years of hard work to finish that task. There was not one new element. There were several of them. Element of surprise. But the most important is radium. The intensity of its rays are several million times greater than the uranium rays. And the effects of the rays make the radium so important. Producing physiological effects on cells of the human organism for the cure of diseases. Most important is the cure for cancer. From its ore, America produces many grams of radium every year, but the price is still very high because the quantity of radium contained in the ore is so small. Radium is more than 100,000 times more precious than gold. Marie Curie is a little like the late Carl Sagan here with his billions and billions of stars, but she's trying to give her audience a sense without bothering them with specific numbers they won't be able to remember of the magnitude of what she's talking about, the high cost of the radium, the, uh, the, the million times more radioactive than uranium. Uh, all of these things, they're not going to be able to take the scientists aside and explain exactly what degrees or what numbers are involved, but they've got a sense. We're looking at worlds of difference and of magnitude here. When radium was discovered, no one knew that it would prove useful in hospitals. The work was one of pure science, which must be done for itself, for the beauty of science. If there was one expression I think nobody in that hall would have expected to hear, it was the beauty of science. This is obviously something very soul-enhancing for her. It raises her spirit. It makes her see things in the universe we don't see as non-scientists or non-hard scientists, the beauty of science. And she's working up to a message. It is my earnest desire that some of you should carry on this scientific work and keep for your ambition the determination to make a permanent contribution to science. Now that is a great speech. That is a speech that allows everybody in the audience to feel they went on a journey with that discoverer and that at the end, they're standing with her on the mountaintop that she has scaled, looking at the way that she came and being urged by her to find their own mountains and to climb them in their turn. She has not used colorful language. She is obviously not a, a practiced public speaker or storyteller, but she had that instinct to take the important points, 
arrange them as they sort of came up like bubbles from the deep of an unknown thing, and then share the excitement of the discovery and the hard facts of the discovery. She is a scientist. She wants to teach. She wants to instruct with her audience. What makes details memorable? What makes details memorable is their importance in a narrative or in a story. I'd like to go from Marie Curie now to another writer, someone in the oral tradition, who we're going to hark back to more than once in this lecture, and that is the poet Homer, the man who created or composed the Iliad and the Odyssey. Homer likes to describe things, but he likes to describe important things. One of his famous descriptions involves a scar. His hero Odysseus has a scar on his leg. Odysseus can be recognized by that scar. He got it in youth. He's come home to his palace in Ithaca, discovering that his palace has been taken over by enemies, suitors for his wife's hand because he's been gone so long everybody thinks he's dead. And he is powerless as one man to tackle them. He will need to use trickery. He will need to get allies. And he needs to initially get inside the palace, scope out the land, and see what course of action he should take. Now, his great risk is that he will be recognized. He is recognized as soon as he approaches his palace there on the island of Ith Ithaca. He walks up to the gate. Beside the gate is the manure heap that they throw out from the domestic animals and will take out to manure the fields. And lying on that manure heap, pathetically, is an old dog. It's his old dog, last seen years before when the dog was a puppy and he was a young man going off to lead the Ithacans in the war at Troy. The dog recognizes his old master. Odysseus is in beggar's rags. It wags its tail. Odysseus goes through the gate. He daren't recognize the dog or pet it or show that he is the master. He crosses the courtyard and goes inside that building. And he's ultimately welcomed by his wife as a beggar who might bring news of her husband from abroad. And the wife, Penelope, tells one of the old maidservants, in fact, Odysseus' own nurse from his boyhood days, wash his feet. He turns away quickly from the firelight, remembering the scar. But the old woman grabs the leg before he can stop her, lifts it up to begin to scrub the dust of the journey off the leg. She sees the scar. She's shocked. And she remembers how he got it. He got it out boar hunting on the slopes of Mount Caledon when he was a young man, joining a group of other heroes. So at that moment, the nurse, whose name is Eurycleia, drops the leg. It splashes in the basin of water. Odysseus reached down and claps his hand over her mouth so that she won't speak. And Penelope, fortunately, has had her attention distracted and doesn't catch on to what's happening. You're never going to forget that scar. You're never going to forget that he got it in a boar's hunt because Homer has given it weight in the narrative. It's the detail that could blow Odysseus' cover, could reveal who he truly is, could lead to his death and the ruin of his family and of his palace. That's what makes details vivid. It's not so much the language you pack around them, it's placing them in a spot in your narrative where they are turning points or where they are key things that then allows your audience to follow the story, to wrap its mind and its memory around those details and keep them vividly 
in a realistic kind of way in their minds as if it were part of their own experience. That's the highest art for me, or one of the highest arts, that any public speaker can command. Now, you find story form in lots of the world's literature. It tends to be especially prevalent where cultures have what we call oral traditions. In other words, they were more about learning to speak and tell stories and hold people's attention in, in grand public orations or around fires at night, passing down history as a series of remembered chronicles rather than just pulling a book off the shelf and consulting it. The vivid use of the detail, the, the uh, assignment to certain objects or, or images, great importance, that's very common to this oral tradition. And I'd like to move now We've moved, had Homer. Let's move to a different kind of oral tradition, that of the Gospels in the Christian Bible, which were originally, <coughs> excuse me, spoken documents, and look at the story of the Good Samaritan as told by Jesus. In the Gospel, according to St. Luke, Jesus has just said, love your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And a lawyer has asked him, who is my neighbor? A good lawyer's question. Jesus has not yet really defined his terms, and he said something shocking, that you should love, you should feel this agape, this open, tolerant welcome to somebody you don't even know well, a neighbor. So Jesus tells a story rather than providing a dictionary-style definition. And his response is much more powerful because it is a story. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him for dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, the lawyer, he that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. Jesus never really answers the question, but he tells this long story. And I submit to you that one of the things that makes the story so powerful is that it's a real story. Let's look at all the little elements that Jesus uses to draw you into this story. First, it's personal. We've got a hero. We've got this Samaritan. Now, it's not clearly understood by many people in the modern world that for a Jew like Jesus to talk about a Samaritan to another Jew was to talk about a person who was untouchable, a pariah, someone who belonged to a fallen, divorced branch of the old Hebrew people, the northerners who had, according to the Jews of Jerusalem and the area around Jerusalem, gone the wrong way. There should be no discourse with these people. They could not be touched. They should not be helped. You shouldn't even go into their territory. That's who this Samaritan is. And the first two people to pass by are, in fact, 
Jews, the Samaritan comes and sees the Jew who has been beaten up, who has been left for dead. The Samaritan, our hero, is the one who is the least likely. So Jesus is using that confounding of expectations, that element of surprise. A Jew was beaten up. Two Jews went by. A Samaritan is the one who stopped. Now, if he had just told that story, it's not much of a story. It's Jesus' details that draw you in. What went into the wound to treat it? Well, there was some oil and there was some, some wine. Wine is a disinfectant. The alcohol in it helps wounds. What did the man do in order to get the, 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 the Samaritan, what did he do to get the poor victim of this, this robbery to the inn? Uh, he put him on his, on his own beast, his own mule or whatever animal was carrying him. And then the fact that we are told very specifically where, where the man was going in the first place. This Jew was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. None of these details really matter because they're not real. This is not a real story Jesus has, Jesus has pulled from the headlines, but they do matter for holding your attention. The details become vivid. You get more into the story. It becomes real to you. And the situation suddenly takes you over. And when Jesus says, which one of these three was the man's neighbor? Suddenly there's great weight to that answer. And the man, the lawyer won't even say the Samaritan. He just says, he that had mercy. But that's the point. Jesus has used the story for instruction. His whole answer to that man, that lawyer, was a story. The story carried the message more strongly, more concretely than any possible explicit statement of words. Now, I found in my own life and in my own career that telling stories is the way to hold people's interest in the classroom. For a long time, I needed money and I would teach night school two and a half hours on Tuesdays, two and a half hours on Thursday nights to classrooms of people who had worked all day and who probably had families to go home to. How was I going to keep them interested? At first I tried notes. I was trying to share what was in their textbooks. I was trying to give organized lists of facts. I was trying to be very organized, which is not really very typical of me. It didn't seem to work. I could tell from the way that they were drifting off to sleep, their feet were pointing toward the door and that unmistakable body language sign of, I want to get out of here, or they'd get up and leave. In self-defense, because I didn't want to be a failure at this, I began to tell a few stories. I began to tie the facts in their coursework to anecdotes. I found immediately that I did that. The focus was on, the attention was there, people were able to stick with it. I ultimately made those two and a half hour lectures one big narrative with a series of smaller narratives threaded like beads on a string inside. I found it easy to remember the sequence. I no longer had to look down at notes or back at a blackboard. I could be with them as we went through this story and series of stories together. That was my own experience as a teacher. As a coach, I had the same experience that is commemorated in that famous movie involving Ronald Reagan in which there is a, a locker room speech where the coach is sending the young players out saying, you know, there was an old team player, his name was the Gipper, and, uh, and one day he said to me, coach, when they're down and victory seems impossible, and he told this long, tear-jerking story about this, this former player, tell him to win one for the Gipper. The story was the point. 
pulling them in, making them feel strong about it, making them feel that that story had empowered them. And that's what stories can do for you if you will find the story in your material and build your speech around it. So let's look at some of our lessons that we get from Marie Curie, from the Gospels, about how to use stories. We can throw in Homer as well. First of all, and for me, this is the key to public speaking. Everything else is secondary to this. Use stories and narratives to make your speech easy to follow and the details easy to understand and remember. You may have to sweat to find the story within your material, but it's worth the effort. Second, clearly identify your theme at the beginning of your speech. Marie Curie. Radium is no longer a baby. It's 20 years old, and I'm going to tell you about its growing up. Or Jesus. The theme was given to him by the question, who is my neighbor? Be sure they understand the point of the story before you launch in, or they'll get drowned in the details. They'll get drowned in the twists and turns of your tale. Third, include vivid and memorable details that bring your subject to life. Don't smooth out the story so it becomes abstract. It is the details that will make it memorable. And then anticipate your audience's questions and provide the answers in the body of your speech. Somehow touch on them in the course of that narrative or story. And remember how beautifully uh, that was done both by Marie Curie with her answering all the questions about radium so you really felt you understood most of the details about this, this very important new element, newly discovered element, but also in the gospel story of the Good Samaritan. Questions about belonging to a certain religion or belonging to a certain community. The man, the lawyer had not asked that question, but Jesus anticipated it and made sure that his story provided the answers. If you will do this, if you will seek out the narrative, you will find, first of all, your own speech stays in your mind more clearly. Second, that your audience will be with you, and because you're telling a story, you'll spend more time looking straight into their eyes and keeping them with you. And third, when the event is over, I guarantee you, years later, after you may have forgotten the occasion and the speech, you will be met by people who thank you for telling that story and let you know how much it's meant to them.